Amen. Can I ask you a question? Do you, do you pray? Do you pray? Now, I'm not asking the Sunday school question, like, have you ever prayed, right? I'm, I'm not saying, is prayer something that you know how to do? I'm asking a more personal question, a more uh, relevant life practice question. Do you pray? Now, for some people, we could answer that question, absolutely. We could answer it with a lot of encouragement and in the affirmative. For a lot of us, though, the question is a little uncomfortable. It sort of presses in to a place where we feel a bit uncomfortable. Um, Prayer is a bit of a sore spot for many of us because we struggle in this area of our Christian experience and, and we feel like it's, it's less than it should be. And so when somebody wants to talk to us about it, it feels like pressing on a wound just a little bit. I think one of the reasons that that's the case is because prayer is more subjective than most other spiritual disciplines. And make no mistake, prayer is a spiritual discipline. But it is more subjective than most. Let me give you a couple of other examples. If I said to you, do you read your Bible? The answer to that question is much more objective, right? It's it's sort of measurable. So you could say, uh, yes, I read my Bible. I read through the Bible once a year. Or I read a chapter in the Psalms and a chapter in the Proverbs and a a chapter in the New Testament every day. Or I read every Friday. Usually when we're talking about reading our Bibles, it's much more definable. It's much more measurable. If I said, do you attend church regularly? Yes or no, right? It's very measurable. I go every week. I mean, unless I'm sick or dying or out of town. I go every single week. Or I go every other week. Or I go every Christmas and Easter, whatever the answer is. But the point is, it's measurable. When you're asked about, do I go to church, that's measurable. These are spiritual disciplines. If I said to you, do you tithe your income? Do you live as a generous person and a faithful steward of everything that God has given you? The answer is yes or no. I mean, and we immediately know whether we do or whether we don't. It's very, very measurable. You can put it on a spreadsheet, okay? If I were to ask you, do you share your faith? The, it's either yes or no. And if the answer is yes, then you could say, yeah, just last week I shared with John or, or uh, I was in evangelism training six months ago and since then I've shared with A, B, and C. It's very, but when I say, do you pray, it gets a little wiggly, doesn't it? Because, because prayer is something that happens and can happen on again, off again, immediately, in the moment, in a specific place. In fact, the Bible says, do you know this, in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, that we are to pray without ceasing. And so prayer is less measurable. Um, You can't put prayer on a spreadsheet and say, this is the way that my prayer life looks. And so we can pray as we go throughout the day. We uh, we have uh, maybe hurried prayers in the morning or we bow our head over our our meals when we we sit down to a meal or we, we pray sleepy prayers as we doze off at night with the news playing in the background. This is the way it is for a lot of us. 
And so here's, here's what I think is true. And I, I can't say that this is true for every person in the room, but I think generally speaking, this is true. It is that prayer is present for most of us. But rather than being a central value of many of our lives, prayer exists more in the margins of our lives. It exists sort of as a peripheral sort of issue, and we go to it and we grab it when we need it, as opposed to having a core value of prayer uh, in my life. And so the goal of our teaching time over the next few weeks is to move the, the value of prayer to move it from the margins and from the periphery into the center of our lives. And so if we're going to do that, it's probably important that we begin with a good definition, as if we didn't know what prayer was, but let's just talk about it for a second. Let me give you a good definition of prayer. You'll find the word pray or prayer or prayed, some form of the word uh, pray, uh, in the Bible over 400 times. And in the New Testament, it is a combination of two Greek words which come together to form the word that's translated prayer. And these two words are these two. One means to direct, and the other means the cares or the wants or the needs or the burdens or the concerns of my heart. So to pray is to take my heart and direct it to God. So here's a good way to write down what prayer is. Jot it down if you will. Prayer is simply a conversation with God. Prayer is a conversation with God. I'm talking to God about the things that are on my heart. You'll notice that prayer is defined as a conversation, not a monologue. It's a dialogue, not a monologue, right? So in a a conversation, in a dialogue... There's, there's talk going back and forth. So prayer is not a recitation where I'm simply running through a grocery list of prayer needs, but it's I'm talking to God and he is talking to me. Now you may say, well, does God talk back? When I pray, is God talking back to me? Well, absolutely God speaks back. In fact, one of the great uh, condemnations of idolatry in the Old Testament is that when the idolaters would pray to their false gods, uh, Isaiah and, and, uh, and Elijah and the other prophets would say, you're speaking to mute gods, gods who cannot speak. Does God speak? Of course he does. Now, he doesn't speak audibly, at least to me. He's not to say he couldn't. He could if he wanted to. But he speaks to us through his spirit And he speaks to us through his word. Do you understand? The spirit of God directs me. The word of God is speaking and guiding me as well. And if you ever think you hear God speaking to you audibly in your prayer time, well, just make sure that what he says is in agreement with his word. Amen? Because he'll always speak in agreement with his word. But he speaks through his spirit and he speaks through his word. And for that reason, you should understand that prayer, when it becomes central in our lives, is not separated from, divorced from the Bible. It's informed by the Bible, it's guided by the Scripture, and it's responded to by the Scriptures as well. We ought to always pray with the Bible, if not in our hand, certainly in our heart um, and in our mind. So prayer is a conversation with God. 
Now, even when I say that, as, as a follower of Jesus, as a child of God, that ought to stir, to think of talking with God, ought to stir up a, a, a sense of intimacy, a feeling of, of warm intimacy, family relationship uh, with God. Because as children of God, we're not praying to a distant deity, right? We're not, we're not trying to get the attention of a God who's out there somewhere and we hope that maybe he'll listen to us. No, we are sons and daughters of God. And he is inviting us to come and to spend time with him as our heavenly father. In fact, this is how Jesus taught us to pray in Luke 11 and verse 2 when he said unto them, when you pray, say, say these two words with me out loud, our father, our father which art in heaven. So what we're instructed in the scripture is that we ought to understand that prayer is a conversation with our heavenly father. It ought to be intimate. It ought to be central to our lives. But still, I understand for so many of us, uh, we would say there is a deficiency in our lives when it comes to prayer. So I want to begin our time by uh, our our time these weeks thinking about why we should pray, uh, perhaps by identifying some reasons why we often don't pray. Let me suggest three to you. Would you write these down somewhere, please? Maybe some of them, or at least one of them, will be applicable in most of our lives. Three reasons, perhaps, that we don't pray as often as we should or like we should. First of all, I would say that we are distracted. Oftentimes, we don't pray because we're distracted. Here's the simple truth. Life is too busy. And because we've allowed our lives to become so busy, so filled with activity, our calendars so crammed, our days so packed that we've begun to believe, we set it to ourselves enough that we've started to believe it, I just don't have time to pray. I'm so busy. But oftentimes it's not just that the calendar is full, that we're busy, it's that our lives are busy with noise. Our lives are so noisy. There's no quiet space anymore. We, we wake up in the morning to noise and there's constant stimulation and noise throughout the day. And we're constantly on social media or doing whatever we're doing with our device in our hand. And then we're off to the day's work and there's constant noise and busyness all through the day. And then all the way into the nighttime and we fall in the bed, oftentimes with the TV on in the bedroom, until we go to sleep with the blue light of the TV shining And there was never a quiet spot in that day. And because life has become so busy and so noisy, then then we just don't take time to pray. I think that's a reason why. Second reason that we don't pray is because we are self-sufficient. Here's the honest truth. We don't believe that we need God most days. We don't believe that we cannot get through Without him, this is the danger. This is the handicap of living in such an affluent society. We can make most things happen. We can get by pretty well on our own. I mean, why should I pray, give me my daily bread when I've got enough food in the freezer to last me through the next 18 months? Why should I pray, God, give me what I need for today when I have more money than I need for the day in the bank already? We're so affluent that quite honestly we think we don't need God. 
Now, this is the difference between living in an affluent, technologically advanced society like we do and living in a place like, uh, let's say, in a refugee camp in Lebanon or maybe in some of the villages where Gary and his team were in Honduras where they have literally nothing. And they, if they are going to survive, will only survive by the provision of God. They are not fooled by some some belief that they are self-sufficient. They know they need God and they go to him in prayer. And it results in great uh, reward. God answering those prayers. We don't pray because we're distracted. We don't pray because we're self-sufficient. Third reason I think we don't pray is because we don't really believe it's going to make a difference. We don't pray because we just think things are going to go the way they are. And we lack some faith or some understanding in, in how our prayers uh, partner with God's sovereignty. And if God knows everything anyway and God's going to do his, his thing anyway and God's going to accomplish his, his uh, will anyway, then why should I even pray? And, and what difference would it make? We lack faith and understanding. And yet prayer does change things. You remember in the Old Testament, Elijah prayed and it didn't rain for three years. And then he prayed again and the rain came. There's an instance uh, when Joshua and his army are fighting in the book of Joshua, fighting a battle, and the sun is beginning to set. It gets in the mid-afternoon and the sun just starts to, to set and Joshua prays, we need more time to win the battle. And he prays and God holds up the sun. The Bible says for 24 hours, for a day, the sun stood still. Joshua prayed, and it made a difference. Prayer does make a difference. R.C. Sproul has written wise words about this issue of prayer and the will of God. He says this, he says, prayer doesn't change God. He's unchanging. Prayer doesn't change God's mind, but it certainly changes things. Sproul has said the prayer of his people is one of the means God uses to bring things to pass in this world. The fact of the matter is when we pray, God brings us into alignment with his will and we begin to be a part of God accomplishing his will. This is the reason sometimes you're prompted to pray in the most exact moment that you need to be praying, right? You ever had that happen? You call somebody up, you say, hey, what's going on? I'm praying for you. And they begin to unfold this story of great deliverance and how just in the nick of time, God came through. And in that very moment, God had put it on your heart to pray. God has so wired the universe that he uses prayer to bring about his will. And so we need to pray. In 2005, Lifeway Stores or the Lifeway organization uh, surveyed 1,300 evangelical pastors and leaders. Now, this is 15 years ago. And they asked them 15 years ago, what is the number one, I'm sorry, what are the top 10 issues facing the church? This is 2005. And the number one answer was the need for ongoing, passionate prayer in the life of Christians, and in the life of the church. This was 15 years ago. 1,300 evangelical leaders and pastors said, we need more than anything else to learn to pray. And if it was true 15 years ago, I would suggest it's a it's 100 times more true today. And so over the next four Sundays, we're going to talk about prayer. Specifically, we're going to 
investigate and look for the motivations of prayer. We're beginning today in Psalm 95, and I want to talk about the motivation of an invitation. Why should I pray? The answer is because I have been invited to pray. Psalm 95, follow along as I read verse number 1. Scripture says, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. And the strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his and he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation. Now, the rest of the psalm goes on to use the illustration, the negative illustration of the Jewish people coming out of the land of Egypt and how their hearts were hardened and, and they refused to believe and come to God and trust him in prayer. And as a result of that, they didn't uh, make it into the promised land. That generation didn't. But he says in verse number uh, 7, verse 8, do not allow your heart to be hardened. I want us to talk today about this first motivation of prayer. And there, there are several others we'll get to over the coming weeks. But today, we're going to answer the, the first question of why we should pray by saying we've been invited. Write it down this way. To pray is to accept a gracious invitation. To pray is to accept a gracious invitation. Now, I know you're writing something, and then I'm going to ask you to circle something, and you can't do both at one time. So when you finish writing, to pray is to accept a gracious invitation. Then I want you to circle the invitations in the text. So in verse number one, circle the word come. And you'll see this word in verse one, verse two, and in verse number six. Circle it all three times, please. Oh, come. Verse number two, let us come to him. Verse number six, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Oh, come before the Lord. The word come means to Come along together. And in verse 1, 2, and 6, it's a congregational or a communal kind of invitation. So here's the picture uh, in verse 1, verse 2, verse 6, when the text is saying, Oh, come, let us worship the Lord together. Oh, come, let us kneel and bow down. It's almost as if there's a, there's a group running to the Lord. There's a, there's a crowd going to the Lord. And as they pass others along the journey, they're going, Hey, come with us. Come, let us go and kneel before the Lord, our maker. It's an invitation coming from one another. I might say it this way. Oh, come, let us gather and pray. In fact, I said that earlier, didn't I? We're going to gather at five o'clock. Oh, come, let us kneel before the Lord and gather together and pray. Would you come and accept an invitation to spend some time before the Lord? It's a congregational kind of invitation. But then there's also a personal invitation in verse number seven, for he is our God and we're his people, the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear 
his voice. Now, what voice is it? It's the voice of the shepherd. That's what verse 7 says. We are the sheep of his pasture. He is our shepherd. If you will hear the voice of the shepherd, then you're invited to come to him. Jesus talked about this in the, in the Gospel of John, I think chapter 10, where he said, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and they come to me. It is an invitation to come and be with him. Now, how arrogant would we be, how proud would we be if we just disregarded a gracious invitation? If you get some gracious invitation and you just disregard it, I don't need that, what an arrogant response that would be. I'll never forget um, years, a number of years ago when I uh, first began to have a friendship with Dr. Billy Graham. In the later years of his life, Dr. Graham and I became uh, pretty close friends. And, and uh, I'll never forget the very first invitation to the mountain in Montreat to come to his home. And it was, come on up to the mountain uh, and come and visit. Well, can you imagine? I, I, was, a, I was a preacher and, and here the, 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 the greatest, most well-known, most God-effective uh, evangelist in the history of the world says, why don't you come on up to my house on the mountain? What if I had said, nah? I mean, can you imagine such a thing? Do you, do you think that maybe when that invitation came, I cleared my calendar? Like, let's rearrange what we have to rearrange. Wouldn't it have been silly for me to have said, I just don't have time, Dr. Graham, to come and talk to you. I'm too busy to come up to the mountain in Montreal. Or if I had said, I I don't need to talk to you. Why would I need to talk to you? I, I, I've got things going fine in ministry. You have no wisdom to offer me. You have no advice, no friendship that I would need. I'll never forget one time as I was leaving Dr. Graham's house, I said, I'll see you, Doc. And he said, call me Billy. I said, I'll never call you Billy. You're Dr. Graham to me. But the point is, it would have been proud and arrogant for me to have said, I have no need of you. Or if I had said, I don't believe you really want me to come and visit. I, I think when I get up there, all you're going to do is talk about all the things I'm getting wrong in my life. I think if we sit and talk, you'll just sort of, sort of just tell me all the things I'm messing up. I don't want to spend time with you. It would have, do you understand? It would have been an arrogant kind of proud response. And yet here's the, here's the truth 10,000 times greater than that, that we have received an invitation to come before the Lord. And how proud we are to say, well, I just don't have time or I just don't need to do that. Look at what verse number two says. Where are we being invited to? Verse number two, let us come, here it is, before his presence. We're invited into the presence of this great one. And who is he? The passage tells us who he is. Look at verse three, four, five, and six. For the Lord is a great God. We're invited into the presence of this great God. He's a great king above all gods. We're invited into the presence of this great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth, and the strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his because he made it, and the hand, his hands formed the dry land. Where are we invited to? Into the presence of the maker, the creator of all things. Verse number six, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Who is this that we're invited? We're invited to come before our maker. Verse number one tells us that he's not only our maker, he's not only the creator, but he's our savior. Verse one, oh, come, let us 
Sing unto the Lord, let us make a joyful noise unto the rock of our salvation. Now you say, many of you say, and I believe you and I say it with you, I'm going to heaven when I die, today, tomorrow, in 50 years, whenever it happens, I'm going to heaven. I know I am because I'm standing on the rock of Jesus Christ. He is not only the great king, the creator, the maker of all things and the maker of my own life, but he is my rock. He is my savior And then he's my shepherd, we already mentioned, verse number 7, for we are the people of his pasture, we are the sheep of his hand. Now to bow before the Lord in prayer, to bow our hearts before him in prayer, is to be ushered into the presence, into the actual presence of this great God above all gods, this mighty king, this creator and maker, this strong and merciful Savior and the shepherd of our souls. It is to be invited into his very presence. If you're with me, would you shout amen? Amen. Here's the invitation to prayer. Come, come into my presence. Now, by the way, you should know where this invitation leads us. Because if I were to say, well, where is the presence of God? You might say, well, he's everywhere and he's with me. So when I pray, is he really come, am I going, am I being invited to go to be with him? Or is, am I just acknowledging that he's with me? Is he coming to be with me? Where are we going in this prayer invitation? Well, verse number two says we're being invited into his presence. I want you to hold your finger in Psalm 95. We're going to be right back to it in just a minute. But I do want you to turn in your Bibles over to the book of Hebrews, please, in the New Testament. So you just go to the very back of your Bible, start in Revelation, and come forward. And you'll be in Hebrews very quickly. And uh, go to chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Get your pen ready. I want you to underline something, please. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 16. I want you to circle or underline in verse number 16 uh, the words, the throne of grace. Here's what it says. Let us therefore come. There's the invitation. We can come into his presence. Where is that? We can come boldly unto the throne of grace. And when we come to the throne of grace, we will find mercy and find grace which will help us in a time of need. The invitation into his presence is to come to his throne, the throne of grace. Well, it begs the question, where is the throne of grace? Where's the throne of God or the throne of grace? Turn a couple of pages to Hebrews chapter 10. Keep your pen handy. Notice what Hebrews 10 says in verse number 19. He says in that verse, having therefore, uh, brethren, boldness to enter into, these two words circle it, the holiest. To enter into the holiest. Now, what's, what's the writer of Hebrews drawing for us? What's he talking about when he says that there is a place that he calls in chapter 10, verse 19, the holiest, and that within the holiest, there is a throne, the throne of God, That is a gracious throne because it's at that throne that we find uh, mercy and grace to help in the time of need. Well, many of you know he's talking about the temple in heaven, which uh, has a place called the Holy of Holies. And here's the thing. If y'all listening, shout amen. In the Bible, every time you see into the throne room of God, into the Holy of Holies, essentially here's what you find. 
perfect angels who encircle that throne crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You find a rainbow of glory encircling that throne. You find millions upon millions upon millions of angels on their faces around that throne. And the glory is so great that there are lightnings flashing all around it and thunder clapping because of the glory of God. In the holy of holies, in the heart of heaven, there's a throne of God filled with grace and the invitation is Come on, you can enter right into that throne room of grace. You may say, well, how in the world is that even possible? I mean, if angels who have never sinned are on their faces, if the, if the character of that place is holiness more than mercy, it doesn't mean we find mercy and grace there, but the angels, the seraphim aren't flying around going, mercy, mercy, mercy. They're not singing grace, 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 or love, love, love. They're singing the the thrice holy character of God. He is holy, he is holy, he is holy. How in the world can I, a broken sinner, accept an invitation to enter into the presence of a holy, holy, holy God? How do I enter? Look at what chapter 10, verse number 19 says. Having therefore, brethren, boldness boldness. Look at what chapter 4 and verse number 16 says. Let us therefore come boldly. Don't miss this. Here's the invitation. You're invited to come into the holy room in heaven where the throne of God is, where angels are on their faces, and you can come in boldly. Now, boldly doesn't mean I come walking in, get out of my way, angel. Jimmy Dax is in the house. <laughs> boldly. No, 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 no. That's arrogantly. That's not boldly. The word boldly means with confidence, with absolute assured confidence that I'm welcome in this holy, holy, holy place. That I walk in there not afraid of being rejected that I know that I'm at home when I get in there. And how is it that a sinner like me can accept an invitation into the holy room of heaven where the throne of God is, the throne of grace, and I can come in with confidence. Look at chapter 10, verse number 19. It'll tell you how. There's only one way how. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter in by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we have courage to pray. Christ shed his blood so that we could enter into the holy place where God is in heaven. And I'm too busy. The maker of heaven and earth, the one who holds the seas and the mountains, the one who made me and gave his life's blood so that he could shepherd my soul, invites me into his presence through his blood and I'm too busy? I don't think I need him? My life's too noisy? The invitation is a gracious one. And if we reject that invitation, loved ones, we are walking with a level of pride that ought to put every one of us upon our faces. Go back to Psalm 95, if you will. When we pray, when we come before the Lord in that throne room of grace in heaven, 
In that holy place, we come only at his invitation. So when I pray, I'm accepting a gracious invitation. The second thing, though, that Psalm 95 would tell us is once we understand the value of the invitation, we accept it, then we begin to recognize that prayer is my space. It's our space for personal worship. That's what happens in prayer. Prayer is our space for personal worship. Now, one of the reasons we struggle with prayer is because we see prayer as a dialogue, I'm sorry, as a monologue, not a conversation with God, but a list reading. So we view prayer primarily as a means to an end as opposed to an end in itself of worship with God. Listen to what he says about what prayer should look like for us. Verse number 2, back in Psalm 95, verses 1 and 2. Oh, come let us, what's he say? Sing. Oh, come let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise unto the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving, and again, make a joyful noise unto him. He says, when we pray, we should be joyful. We should be expressing our joy in knowing him. And we may not express our joy in our current circumstance or situation. There's a lot of brokenness and pain in life, as we spent the last few weeks talking about in Philippians. But we're expressing joy in the fact that here we are, broken people, in the presence of Almighty God. I can come before him with thanks for who he is and thanks that I belong to him. Be joyful. Worship him with joy. And then he says in verse number two, be thankful. And then in verse number six, be reverent. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. The fact is that our posture in prayer should mimic what is described in Scripture, so that my heart, if not my physical posture, but my heart posture, ought to be in prayer, one of always kneeling before him, bowing down, because I'm praying to God. I'm not telling God what he has to do. I don't have a position over him. I'm under him. And so I'm bringing my heart to him, and in my posture, I'm kneeling down before him. Now, it's good to kneel when you pray. I highly recommend it. I understand the older we get, the harder it gets to kneel. It doesn't get hard to kneel. It gets hard to get up from kneeling. I get that. But, you know, if if kneeling is hard on your knees, you can lay on on your stomach, lay prostrate. I often do that in prayer. It's a good position. But but even if you're in a place praying where you're not kneeling, the position of your heart is that you would bow down before him. The point is that we're reverent. I think it'll help us in our prayer life if we'll stop seeing prayer as a laundry list of to-dos. It's God's to-do list from me. And it is rather my opportunity, my space to cultivate personal worship. We pray because we've been given an invitation to do so and we worship. Now, there's one third thing that I want you to mention just to to close up. And uh, you'll see this in Psalm 95 as well. You may not expect it right away, but let me, let me show it to you. It is that prayer is our greatest opportunity to connect with others. And I mentioned this at the beginning, that there's a communal kind of sense in this passage. Prayer is our greatest opportunity to connect with others. I, I would say it this way. You will develop a, a level of friendship, a level of intimacy in your closest relationships, a depth of relationship among your friends that will far exceed anything you'll ever know if you'll begin to pray together from time to time. Because it is our greatest opportunity to connect with others. 
The fact of the matter is prayer for for well over 80% of us, for the overwhelming majority of us, prayer is an absolutely solo activity. We pray alone. And that's good. We should pray alone. But we should also learn and be willing to pray with others. I think Barna did a study years ago which said that 82% of those who pray regularly, many people don't pray regularly, but of those who say they do pray regularly, 82% of them almost always pray alone. But we should pray with others. Again, verse 1, verse 2, verse 6. So come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Verse 2, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving, make a joyful noise to him with psalms. Verse number 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Verse 7, for he is our God. We are the sheep of his pasture, or the people of his pasture. So the the Bible infers in, in Psalm 95 that prayer is not just a solo event, it's not just an individual um, uh, event, but it is a congregational, a corporate, a communal um, kind of event. And by the way, this is modeled throughout the scriptures. Over and over again, the Bible shows us people praying together. It's, it's It's a common portrait. I mean, Jesus prayed with his disciples. In fact, Luke 11, Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. They saw him praying alone. They came to him and said, Lord, pray with us. Teach us how to do what you're doing. And he taught them how to pray, the model prayer. In Acts chapter 2, the disciples prayed together before Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, the early church prayed in a time of persecution. And the place was shaken when they prayed together. In Acts chapter 12, Peter is thrown into jail. And the church gathers and prays Together In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in that Philippian jail together and they begin to pray together. Here's the point. You've been invited by the the God of eternity to spend some time worshiping him in prayer. To reject that invitation is the height of arrogance and indifference. So you should accept it, but you should not only accept it alone, you should pray with others. So let me make some suggestions about who you might pray with. Are you married? If you are, and certainly if your spouse is a believer, then you should pray with your spouse. I want to issue a challenge to every married couple in the room. And I know this is, this is pressing in close, but I love you. Pray together. Some of you guys are saying, right now, oh, pastor, stop it. I was really enjoying this till now. But you are. And, and some of you guys are going, it's just, it's just so uncomfortable and I just don't know what to say and it's just hard to start the come on guys man up amen Amen. you you can talk to your wife about anything you don't mind telling her when you don't like something she does (laughs) it's easy for you to say what's for dinner you don't have any problem telling her a thousand things but then suddenly you go mute when it comes to leading your wife to the throne of God? Pray with your wife. Wives, pray with your husband. It doesn't have to be this profound kind of prayer. You don't have to, you say, well, I'm just not good at it. Who's, who's scoring? 
I did it once and got a D minus. <laughs> no such thing. There's no right or wrong way to do this. Pray together. Tracy and I sometimes, in fact, we really haven't done this a lot, but we always find it's the most profound way when we're praying together. And I say this not to hold us up as an example, but just to be illustrative of a way to do it, is that, is that we'll pray what she calls popcorn prayers, where she'll pray for something, and then I'll pray for something. And then she'll pray, and then I'll pray, and then she'll pray. And, I, and there's no, it's just when she pauses, I'll jump in. And if she pauses, I'll, or when I pause, she'll jump in. And something she'll pray about or remind me of something I need to pray about, and I'll pray. And before you know it, we've spent some time together in prayer, and it's powerful. Do that. Pray with your spouse. Now, I know many of you uh, are not married, and, and maybe uh, you're married to someone who's not a believer, and so that's uh, really especially Difficult, but there ought to be somebody. Maybe it's a child, maybe your uh, your children, grown or not. Pray with them. Pray over your children, mom and dad. Let your children hear you pray for them. Not just see you pray, hear you pray. Hear the words coming out of your mouth, praying over them. And if you say, "Well, my kids are grown, and I never did that," now, well, do they have children? Pray over your grandchildren. Your kids will love it. Pray over your loved ones. Pray with a friend. What would it look like in a friendship for you to say to your friend, hey, can, before, we, before we finish this conversation, can we just take a minute and just pray together? Do that. You have a friend that you could call up on the phone and ask them to pray with you? Pray with a small group. Pray with your, your, your group Bible study or your ministry team. If you're, if you're on a ministry team and your team meets... 30 minutes before service starts to gather for prayer, show up. It's worth coming 30 minutes early to be there to pray with your team. And then, of course, pray with your church. Tonight's a great opportunity to do that. And so the fact is, our maker, the creator, our savior, our shepherd has invited us to come into his presence before the very throne of Almighty God in the Holy of Holies and speak with him. And so my challenge to you is that you would do it. Let me give you, let me give you some steps, and then we're going to be done. Let me give you some steps. Number one, beginning today, pray every day. Now, don't tell me you can't. You can. So just begin. You don't, have to, you don't have to say, I'm going to pray for an hour every day. Pray for five minutes. Start small. Here's the best way to do it. Define a time. You'll probably find that you'll exceed that time pretty quickly. But set a time. I'm going to pray for five minutes to begin, if that's what it is. And dis- define a place. I'm going to pray somewhere. Don't say, I, well, I pray every day in my car as I'm driving to work. You need to pray as you're driving to work. I've seen some of you drive. <laughs> But if that's your only time talking to God, you're not going to have a very deep relationship. Imagine if you only talk to your wife in the car. You didn't speak to her at home. You want to talk? Let's go with Kmart. I'll talk to you in the car. No. Define a place on your back porch, in your bedroom, next to your uh, bed, sitting on your recliner, whatever. Find a place. Define it. That's my place. And every day I'm getting to that place. Five minutes as a minimum, I'm going I'm to talk to God. Start there. Number two. You ready? If you're ready, say amen. amen. 
at least part of that prayer, pray out loud. (gasps) Pray out loud. Some of you have never broken the sound barrier in prayer. You need to hear your voice say, Almighty God, in the name of Jesus, I come before you. Or however you approach. Hear yourself. Let your ears hear your mouth speaking to God. I know it can be intimidating to pray with other people out loud. I get that. But you know what? It's just you. Pray out loud. Let yourself hear your own voice. Pray Number three, pray with someone else. You begin alone for a brief time in a set place, at least a little bit of it out loud, and then you're going to graduate to praying with someone else. I'm going to pray with my spouse or my friend or my, my kids or whomever. Here's the thing. We've been invited to do this, and there are very real life reasons we should. Right? I mean, we're going to talk about those motivations. Like next week, we're going to talk about I can't make it on my own. We're going to talk about why we need to pray because I can't get through this life on my own. That's a real life reason. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about I need to pray because God's given me little ones to influence. Most of us at some point in our life are going to be raising kids or influencing grandkids. I need to be praying for my kids and my grandkids. I'm a parent or a grandparent. That's important. That's a real life reason to pray. A week after that, we're going to talk about, I need to pray because I need wisdom. I don't know which steps to take. I'm, I'm uncertain of my next step. I need God's wisdom and discernment. Those are real life reasons to pray, but they all come second to this reason. God asked you to come to him. If you didn't have any real life reasons to go to him, he invited you to come. And who are we to say no thank you to coming to him? I was reading this week, someone said, That every great house begins with the first stone. The the temple of God, Solomon's temple that stood on Mount Moriah, the beautiful house of prayer began. It didn't begin as a beautiful house of prayer. It began as one unseen foundation stone deep in the earth. But from that stone grew this beautiful house of prayer. And if your life is not a great house of prayer right now, it begins with one stone. Start laying the stones of prayer. And for some of you, that might mean that stone of prayer is the prayer of salvation, right? I should be a person of prayer because how did I even get saved? By coming to Christ in prayer, asking for his salvation. And maybe today you need to start building your life of prayer by trusting in Jesus Christ. Is your Savior. If so, I hope you'll do that right now. Let's pray together.